0: is i feel like it's it's like fashionable for people to shit on kirk hammett as well yeah is i don't know if that's a thing or not but is that justified is is he overrated underrated like kind of curious where you come in on I, that.
1: i think kirk hammett is perfectly rated let's put it that way <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hello and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where musicians, lifelong musicians, old friends get together and analyze, talk about, discuss, and talk shit on an album from Robert Dimery's seminal work, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We're going to do a deep dive on the album, its impact on the world of music, where it fits in the artist's career and where it fits in our lives, and talk about some of the songs as well. And at the end, we're going to vote. Did you really need to listen to this album before you died? You'll have our official opinion by the end of this podcast. This week, we've been listening to Metallica's eponymous Black Album. It's an eponymous album, but it's also known as the Black Album. So very excited to get into this with you gentlemen on the call here today. Welcome. Hello, hello. Good day. Hey, good, good to hear from you. Just expecting some response from us
3: on that one, Rob.
0: Listen, you're on a tight ship. We don't speak until, until spoken to. All yeah.
2: Right. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I have to say your name directly. Okay, before we get into introductions and encapsulated reviews of Metallica's Black Album, which I'm very excited to hear how everyone's week was, I wanted to read some listener mail, because we got some good stuff this week. So this is in reference to our recent episode about Bob Marley and the Whalers' Natty Tread. Listener Dominic writes in, and by the way, it's a complaint. I think this might be our first official complaint. Of course, this is the one I hosted too, so. (laughs) So so get ready for some shade, Alan. So listener Dominic writes in, During your most recent episode, a lot of you landed on Natty Dread as the best that reggae has to offer. And I wanted to put in my own two cents in opposition. I discovered reggae by way of dub reggae a long time ago. I first heard that compilation Dub Gone Crazy by King Tubby. Sorry, I'm having a hard time not laughing. I think reggae <laughs> band names and artist names are pretty hilarious. and but anyway, listener Dominic says it was a revelation. I'd never heard anything so trippy, chill, experimental, melodic. S- then I started exploring all these other less w reggae albums. And he goes on to give us a, a series of of recommendations. If we want to expand our palette of of minor key reggae, as we said, so he he recommends things like Junior Mervin, the Congos, Max Romeo, and culture.
3: This is why we do this. This is why we do it. So this is why we can do tell this. Tell us how dumb we are. You know, I, that's really this is what why we do we this. So people well, don't tell we us that don't in
2: our
0: day-to-day lives. <laughs> we're
2: so beaten down, we clearly don't know that much about reggae. I think we're pretty upfront about that. We took the, the Bob Marley and the Whalers record at, sort of at face value and talked about our own experiences with it and where it kind of fit in the pantheon of reggae. But this is a good example of you know how we can maybe explore a little more between King Tubby and Lee Scratch Perry and all those other band names that listener Domlik recommended. I, I also would be remiss if I didn't mention the Harder They Fall oh, the soundtrack Cliff. album. The Jimmy Cliff, mm-hmm. mostly Jimmy Cliff songs on that soundtrack album, but also includes reggae luminaries such as Desmond Decker and Toots and the Maytals, and that is a little more what you'd call major key reggae, but also also a great compilation as a soundtrack to a, to a movie, I, I believe, that came out in the late 60s, early 70s. Anyway, that's a fun one as well, so if you're looking to expand your reggae palette, those are some great options for you listeners. Dive in. So should we be prepared for the metalheads to come after us
0: after uh, this this episode?
2: Well, it's funny you mention that, because this happens to be a very contentious album in the metal pantheon. I think all would agree, but also an extremely successful one. You know, generally albums are contentious when they are extremely successful. So let's get right into talking about Metallica's Black Album. I'd love to introduce our cast of characters, and we actually have a very special guest today I'm going to give a special introduction to momentarily, and I'd love to hear everyone's encapsulated sort of tweet-length review of Metallica's Black album. So I'm going to start with our guest first. His name is Nick Morrison. He's the Amazon number one best-selling author. He's a professional musician. He's a composer. He's a teacher. He's a YouTube creator. He's coming to us from Calgary, Canada. Nick has toured through the United States and Japan and Canada as a guitar player. Basically, his bona fides are way beyond all of ours, so we're very excited to have him here. Did I mention that he was educated at berkeley college of music very exciting so i'm sure we'll have lots of questions for him and want to dive in but i'm going to throw it over to mr nick morrison right now
1: all right thank you for that wonderful welcome i appreciate it thank you for having me on the podcast i'm super excited to be here all right my tweet length encapsulated review metallica's metallica that's the first thing i should mention it's not actually called the black album that's just a nickname but here we go metallica metallica the best album of all time period hashtag fight me (laughs)
4: <laughs>
2: oh all right oh, i, I like Come. this yes coming in hot <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 gotta take a strong stance right
2: coming in hot okay well this is gonna be interesting see how this one goes all right so i'm gonna kick it over to tom next
3: oh god damn you're gonna make me follow that up all right fine my my encapsulated review here this is tom metallica set out to make a metal album for non-metal heads they definitely succeeded much to the chagrin of, I think, a lot of their historic fans. In the process, they got maligned by a lot of metalheads, but did they actually create more metalheads with this album than kind of all of the other metal albums previous combined? I think this Ooh. might have spawned more metal fans than any other metal album of all time.
2: Interesting. That's kind of like how the This Is Your Brain on Drugs ad actually probably created more drug addicts.
0: <laughs> yeah, I looked at it I was like, that seems pretty fucking rad. Let's do that.
2: <laughs> Dude,
0: I remember I said all the time that when I took D.A.R.E., which, I, Nick, I don't know if you had D.A.R.E. in, in Canada, but it was like we a We did, drug. actually. I remember being way more interested in drugs when they came in and told us that, like, this is LSD and this makes you feel like you want to fly. And I remember being like, well, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it might may have had the uh, unintended effect there. Challenge, challenge accepted.
3: This stuff feels so good. People ruin their lives for it. I'm like, well, that's gonna feel pretty damn good then. Let's check that
2: out. <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna keep it going here and pass it over to Alan.
0: Yeah, this is Alan here. Worst metal album of all time. Fight me. No, I'm totally kidding. Um, <laughs> so, this album to me, on in retrospect and re-listening to it again this week was. A little less interesting than I remembered it being, but are there some absolute bangers on this album? To that, I would say, yeah, yeah, love <laughs> nice. it. Nice,
2: nice, nice vocalization, nice grunts. <laughs> All right, Phil, let's kick it to you.
5: I'm gonna say that, uh, yeah, this is this was an interesting one this week because I mean to 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 champion Allen. Uh, you know, there are some absolute just crushers on this record, no doubt. But in a completely different way, uh, it's like Metallica cleaned up for this record. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, Metallica cleans up and goes mainstream would probably be my tweet length review.
3: <laughs> Phil, my my alternate my alternate tweet length review was metal you can listen to with your mom um, for this <laughs> yeah. album, which I figured I'm not necessarily even saying that's an insult, but uh, that sure. was kind of my uh, my snarky take on it. But yeah, I don't know. I like to listen to music with my mom. She's got some interesting opinions. She grew up in the sixties, you know?
1: Yeah.
2: She did a lot of that LSD probably. I'll <laughs> <laughs> explain a lot. So, so this is Rob. you to round it out. This is Rob here. And my tweet length review of Metallica's Metallica is I can confidently say that this is the best ever heavy metal record. That includes a West side story tease. <laughs>
5: There's a West side story tease.
2: Really? Uh,
3: yeah. A lot, lot of contenders uh, for that one, right, Rob?
2: A little, little bit of a deep cut on that one. Okay. Yeah. Yes, they do reference West Side it. Story. I just thought that was a really odd choice for yeah. Metallica, but it was in there. <laughs> it was in there. I must have missed cool. that. So, interestingly,
1: sorry if I can take us off track for for, for half a second, um, I actually did a review of the Metallica Black Album probably about a year ago on my YouTube channel, and I talked about that specific quote from West Side Story. Um, I'm very careful with YouTube because they're, they're, they're really... Tight Sorry, I should probably ask. Are we allowed to swear on the podcast? Okay, ass, so YouTube ass. is super tight assed when it comes to copyright infringement. And even if you're doing it in an academic way or in a reference way or a, a parody way, you'll get dinged and you'll get a top, a copyright strike. And if you get too many of them, you lose your, your monetization. You lose your, lose your channel, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm very careful with the length of music that I use, how much I quote, what I do with it. The That video ended up getting uh, pinged. But not for anything of Metallica's. It got pinged for West Side Story.
2: <laughs> wow. It's just, just to be clear, it's the guitar riff at the beginning of Don't Tread on Me, yep. I believe. Yeah. The I Wanna Be in America.
5: Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think once I once you say it, then you listen to it, yeah, you'll know yeah. what we're talking yeah. about. I know we're not all denizens of the musical theater exactly on this call here, but It should be familiar. So before we go any deeper into Metallica's Black album, let's play a little snippet just to give you a taste of what you're going to hear contained on this album. Here is a little piece of the huge mega hit, Enter Sandman. Ever heard this song it was ubiquitous for probably continues to be ubiquitous so i have a hard time believing that anyone that clicked on this podcast is unfamiliar with enter Sandman. but i'm glad we got we got that piece out of the way it was it was a huge hit for them so let's talk about where metallica was was kind of at yes alan <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't – I I just watched a video the other day. Do you know that guy, Larnell Lewis, the
0: drummer for Snarky Puppy? Yeah, yeah. I think it was him where he – they do one of those reaction videos where he listens to Enter Sandman for the first time. Or he may have done another song. I may be conflating certain folks. But, like, I couldn't get over the fact that a professional musician hadn't heard the song, even if they're in a totally different – he claimed, like, yeah.
5: no, I have not heard this
0: song. So, yeah. you know, maybe he's like, you know, a lot of these guys are, like, church players, and so maybe that's where they spend most of their time. Could but be. Uh, that, I found that to be, like, utterly shocking.
1: It, Yeah, that is, it was shocking when I saw that video. Same thing.
2: Okay, got it. I've I've seen, and that's a whole series of videos, right? I saw one where the the guy was playing, what's the famous Tool song?
1: A schism. It's seven. Mm-hmm. Or schism schism. is the one schism, I'm thinking yeah. of,
2: yes. I, I can't remember what the drummer's name was, but some some jazz drummer. I mean, they must they must recruit those guys and then go through a list of popular material and go, which of these haven't you heard? <laughs> yep. It's got to be a little hard to find I, that, right? You to know, honesty,
3: yeah. is Lionel Lewis is either 12 or has never walked by a radio in his life. Because if you've walked by a radio just playing some like, you know, top 40 or I guess at
1: this point, classic. Yeah, I also feel station. like you couldn't
5: have watched a football game or a baseball game or like
1: hockey uh, game.
5: Yeah, a yeah. Nightmare, yeah, nightmare. Yeah, a nightmare. Thanks, Canada,
1: movie. with the hockey game. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Also, if I'm looking at a list, it'd be much easier to say, I've never heard this song. But once you play the song, you go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've heard yeah. that at the stadium, obviously. Absolutely, yeah. yes. But then, but that, at that point, you're pot committed based on the nature of the video, yeah. right? So you just have to roll with it.
1: Also, it's YouTube, like to be mm-hmm. fair. Like, YouTube let's make a real? clickbait. What, you're <laughs> yeah, saying already. they might
2: not be telling the truth? Is that, they is that
1: they might doing? not be. They might <laughs> not Liars
0: be. on the internet. Although it's
1: possible. There is, I, I, and I know we're going off topic a little bit, but there's a band from, from um, uh, I want to say New Jersey, but they're, swing, they're singers from Denmark. Uh, they were really popular in the 80s. They were called White Lion. And uh, I'd never heard of them. We didn't get them in Canada, or at least in the tiny little town that I actually grew up in. Um, and I'd never heard of them literally until about six months ago and I'm a huge metalhead, a huge 80s fan, like all that kind of stuff. And I was just blown away. I was like, how did I never hear about these these guys? But we have this thing called CanCon where like 30% of our radio has to be Canadian artists. So there's a bunch of stuff that if if it's like kind of like B level or C level hits, they just don't get played here in favor of
2: Canadian music. Does that
3: explain the bare naked lasers? Is that how we got Ben? <laughs> I was going to say
2: probably. That's that's, be, that's before you play thirty percent of only the tragically Hip, right? Yeah, yeah, shoot me, please. <laughs> okay. Cool. Let's get a little bit into the background of how this record was made. It's Metallica's fifth album. They were thinking they wanted something new, right? They felt that at this point in their career they had built a really nice following, they had toured the world. They were successful by a lot of measures that we can we can point to. But they hadn't really broken through to the mainstream. They they literally said, hey, we we want our back in black referencing the ACDC record. We want we want something big and how are we gonna do it? And they in some senses they felt like they had kind of proved their sort of prog metal chops over the years they a lot of their earlier records had these very long very complicated songs i think a lot of the songwriting at that time was informed by you know how can it be more complex how can it how many times can we change time signatures how fast can we go things like that and one of the fun anecdotes i heard was that kirk hammett claims that when they were on the tour for the last record which was called injustice for all and they were playing the title track and justice for all one night which is like a 10 minute, super long song, very involved song, he looks out in the crowd and he sees people like yawning and checking their watch. And he's like, (laughs) Oh, I think, I think something's gone awry here. Right. So they started to have this thought of like, I think this kind of songwriting has run its course. How do we, how do we move to the next stage of the band and they started looking around at the producers of the day, and they end up hooking up with this guy, Bob Rock. That's the first Bob
1: miracle,
5: Rock. right? The first yeah. miracle of the this The first record.
1: miracle, absolutely. Fellow Canadian, this I might add. Th- oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah.
5: Oh, I was going to say it's a miracle that his actual God given name is Robert Jens Rock.
1: Yes. Bob <laughs> that Rock. Is, that's miracle one. I it reminds me of that uh,
0: <laughs> Say by the Bell episode where they're playing in the garage, and they're like, and all of a sudden, Fate walked by, and the guy's like, hi, my name's Nick Fate, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So this guy, Bob Rock, Canadian producer, guy who had kind of been around the business and produced some some really great records. Specifically, the record that Metallica loved was one Motley Crue's Doctor Feel Good. And they they heard the sound on that. They heard Tommy Lee's drums on that. Lars Lars was like, oh, we gotta, we gotta talk to the guy that made this. And it turns out it was Bob Rock. But he had also worked on, he was like the mixer and the engineer on Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet. I think he had worked with maybe Def Leppard or other, other 80s luminaries. He had been a musician himself yeah. and then transitioned into being an engineer, a mixer, and ultimately a producer. And when they originally reached out to him, they wanted him just to mix the record. And he refused. He, this is how you know he's a, he thinks of himself in a very confident way. He was like, no, I'll only do it if I can produce the record. Metallica, on the other hand, were very used to producing records on their own. Lars and James Hetfield The drummer and the rhythm guitar player and singer respectively were used to handling all that on their side and what it resulted in another thing that Bob Rock kind of did right away was if you go back and listen to some of those old Metallica records they have very little bass in the mix not just the bass guitar but even the bass drum so I think a lot of what Bob Rock did was come in and say we need to give you guys some low end we need to slow the songs down. We need to condense the songs a bit to make them a little more radio friendly as singles. And I I want to add a lot more low end to this mix and to your sound generally. Well, I think one of the things I saw was that they had to. They asked him to don't play it like
0: a guitar because I think maybe that's how he was used to, like fleshing out the riffs, or you know, or something. But yeah, I think that focusing on the bass aspect comes through. Yeah, for sure.
1: it, it's funny because. In preparation for this, of course, I pulled out all of my Metallica archive. I've got a huge collection of stuff, and I will fully admit to being a Metallica fanboy. So I've got the Black Album reissue box set, and I was reading through the liner notes and whatnot. And Jason talks about this specifically, where he and Bob and Randy Staub, who was the mixing engineer on the record, really sat down and discussed. And they really kind of taught him how to be more of a rock bass player versus a metal bass player. But part of that, I think with And Justice For All, you have to go back even further to look at Master of Puppets because Master of Puppets, which would be most Metallica fans pick as their best album, I think, was really orchestrated, arranged and written in huge part by Cliff Burton, who was their original bass player, who died on the tour for that record. And part of that grieving process for whatever it's worth and James has even sort of admitted this and you can see a lot of it on year and a half in the life of Metallica which was the documentary that they made to document the making of the Black Album but they were really hazing Jason and part of that process was we're going to mix you out of the record because fuck you you're not Cliff Burton
5: You know, that's really interesting because I I went back and sort of skimmed the records. Master of Puppets is definitely the one I'm most familiar with. That's sort of the thing I learned this week is like, I actually don't know Metallica's records that well. I know Master of Puppets. I know the songs that dudes played for me in grade school and high school, right, that are on Injustice for All and Ride the Lightning. And I know the hits from the Metallica record, like from from Metallica and from Load Um, And some of the later stuff, but I don't really know Metallica that well. I just know like a little more than the sort of superficial hits. But when you go back, Ride the Lightning, the first one, it has bass, right? And I would guess that that's a function of them being more junior dudes in the studio. And just trusting somebody else maybe because they have to or maybe trusting cliff burton i don't know but like there is low end on ride the lightning there isn't on master puppets well there isn't but like there's less it's a it's more of a it's it's focused in a different way and then yeah there's just no base on injustice for all uh
3: i think a big part of it was that when you think about a band dynamics cliff burton was a full-fledged member of the band And also a goddamn shredder He was a really he good shreds. bass player So he played yeah. uh, he played up on the neck a lot As well, he really would get into it He was not necessarily laying back a lot He would at times, but he had a lot of passages That he would be playing up on the neck And This is a band that I think it's, I'm not telling tales out of school here To say that it's full of egos And when you get a guy Like Jason New said, who's new to the band and is not able to carry his own weight in that situation. Lars is like, I'm going to mix my drums way higher than the bass. And then Kirk's like, well, I'm going to put my guitar way higher than the bass. And I'm going to put the vocals way higher than the bass. And everything ends up being way higher. And he's probably sitting in the corner like, I don't know, guys. I'm just pretty happy to be along for the ride.
5: like, <laughs> Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think all of that, I think all of that is our factors, right? And in general, I always think that mixes on records and what gets the most prominence are some kind of reflection of the power dynamics in any given band. And I think, you know, it's also a lot of the previous recordings were driven, a lot of the writing was driven by Lars and James. And, you know, just to jump right into even the way they used to record records, I was surprised to learn that... This was the first time they were trying to do takes as a band together in the room, or at least some of the early times, meaning to say that a lot of the other records were constructed from drum solo drum tracks and then on up, as opposed to kind of getting a live band feel in the room that that said, even some of the drum tracks on this are, in fact, spliced together from various large drum tracks, yep. which, again, I found really interesting, too, because you get a very live, contiguous feel. You would never notice those kinds of splices. And this is the tape splicing era. In fact, yep. I believe the engineer was called like Ra- Randy Razorblade. As Randy Stav, yeah. Yeah, as, as, a, as a loving joke about how he had to cut the tape together to mix these, these takes.
3: So is it time to start talking shit on Lars's drumming? Is are we at that point in the podcast yet? Because <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. splicing together a lot of Lars drum takes, I, and I don't, I'm not a Lars hater by any means, but listening to a lot of the drum takes, I'm not hearing Lars, complex that, bass work, complex tom work. It's really a lot of you know one,
1: two, three. It's caveman drumming. Type of,
5: yeah, Lars's public drum. persona does not make it easier oh. to like Lars's yeah. music.
2: He seems like a huge asshole. Let's start with Lart. So first of all, he's Danish, and he comes from I think both of his parents were like professional tennis players, so he's kind of always been oh, that's a little interesting. bit of a, that, uh, of a rich kid, cool yeah. kid. And guess guess which former podcast subject he happened to be childhood friends with? Nanacherry.
0: Mm-hmm. No. Nana Cherry. That's
2: correct. Hey! So <laughs> <laughs> the
5: these are possible? all problems. I just these picked all the worst yeah, guy. <laughs> His well, he's a Danish, badass, though. We all we all saw his dad in the documentary. His dad's a badass, oh
3: right? That's my that might be my favorite moment from any music documentary where he plays. I think it's Saint Anger for his dad, and he says, <laughs> "You just take this album and throw it right in the trash." And the look in his face is just like, "Oh," but you have no sympathy for him because you just watched him sell his art collection for like twenty five million dollars and be all like, "Woo! I'm even more rich now. Fuck you all." <laughs> Like, go to Lars
2: that, that said to play the and then let's not forget <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lars is coming out against Napster and that whole debacle like he doesn't have a great public yeah. persona he kind of seems like an asshole in all the film
1: although in retrospect he was not wrong
2: He wasn't wrong, maybe, but he was fighting. (laughs) You're not wrong, dude. You're just an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Am I wrong? (laughs) Thank you. Excellent. Very nice. Very nice. Here's another. Here's another leading indicator that Lars might not be such a great guy. He's currently on his fourth marriage. Yes. And in fact, so here's a little context. I think always think is interesting. When these guys were recording this record, they were all right about the age of 27. Yeah. Which, in my mind, you know, this came out when I was about the age of 12, and I was. I had the tape, which was... I didn't even have a lot of tapes. I was right before the CD era. So it was early in my music listening career. But you always just think of the people as immeasurably older than you, right? But the fact that they're only 27 years old. But even though they were only 27 years old, three of the four guys, everyone but Hetfield, was going through a divorce while they were doing this recording.
3: You know, I remember seeing an interview with Hetfield where he was talking about... Basically it was like, "Hey, like what's your life now?" And he was like, "Well, you know, I play a show. We get done playing a show, we go out, there's a huge shower, we get in there and a bunch of naked women come and scrub us down. It's a pretty good life." And like, <laughs> "How are you going to stay married? How are you going to st- like you yeah. married somebody when you're 22 and got your first record contract?" You're like, "Yeah, all right." you know not that i i i wouldn't say that they were an asshole for having been divorced a bunch of times i would say that they're an asshole for getting married times two three four and five when you're like listen we all know which way this is going i'm just gonna completely cheat on you you're you like look honey you know
0: there. about the showers right because yeah. that's just a, that's <laughs> yeah. just a part of the deal here <laughs> and <as> she's <laughs> like
3: yeah of course you know that i'm gonna take like a 30 of your wealth as soon as this happens right so
2: 30 oh, if you're lucky bro yeah. But okay, but just, I, I actually, I like Lars's drumming. I think, I do think, my understanding, I'm not a Metallica historian, so maybe Nick can weigh in, but my understanding is that he they were purposely trying to simplify the tunes a little bit, and that included the drumming on yes. this record. But I think he shows some really good taste, and I think that the, the genre they're swimming in, generally, rides and dies on rhythmic changes, ry- rhythmic shifts, whether they, when they switch to halftime, or when they go to double time, when yeah. they drop out. There's there's a few very tasty little things that I think he does that are simple but impactful that make that sell the songs above and beyond just a, a repeated riff. I,
5: I think sell the songs is a good way to say it. I think there's there's a there's like a through line between Lars and Ringo. And I, I know that's like a really weird, you know, comparison, but like they just make the songs work, right? Like yeah. they sound really good. The actual sound quality of the drum is fabulous. Right, like, and it's sort of in there in a way where it's like almost lyrical. Very different here, right? Than you know, maybe like you know, when I'm sixty-four or something. <laughs> but like, yeah, I think I think he serves these songs perfectly.
1: Yeah, and again, it it was that conscious effort to have a more accessible sound and a more quite rightly back in black feel because his drumming in this. On this record was purposefully modeled after Phil Rudd from AC/DC. If you listen to the, his hits on the backbeats, when he hits his splash cymbals, is exactly the same kind of four on the floor, straight ahead four-four rhythms that AC/DC were doing, you know, uh, what ten years earlier uh, with Back in Black, or I guess eleven years because they would have made it in 1980, something like that before it was released. But yep. that was the, the that was the purpose. It was like, well, it worked in this. Let's pull it into our music. And make it accessible, because I'm beyond not, that, to the Ringo thing. Sorry, I don't. I, I mean to step over you. Ahead, ahead. To the yes. Ringo thing, you know whether it was conscious or not. This album, to somebody's point, I think birthed more metalheads than any other metal album, and probably caused more young drummers to start drumming, more young guitar players to start uh, guitaring, myself included, um, and more singers to want to start writing songs, or bass players even to be, play bass. And I think that was that was part of it because of that accessibility.
3: I'm not trying to talk shit on Lars. I feel like he's, he gets a lot of shit talked on him. And I, I think that part of the reason why he gets a lot of shit talked on him is because by and large, a metal band, very much like a punk band, if the drummer is not the best member of the band, You suffer from that. And I would not look at Lars and say that he is the best member of Metallica. We've brought up Tool before. And what's the drummer from Tool? Danny Carey, right? Mm -hmm. He's the best member of Tool by far. And that's the reason that Tool is amazing. Danny Carey and Maynard, right? Like you get Maynard and you get Danny Carey together. Those two guys make the band and everything else. You could kind of swap out a bunch of those pieces. I don't necessarily feel that way about Lars. I don't think that he carries the band in the way that a lot of metal drummers. You think anyone in
5: Metallica except Hetfield, obviously is replaceable.
3: I'm not, no, I'm not even saying that. I'm not saying that I am saying that in usually in a metal band that is really good. You have like a virtuous, virtuostic guitar player and a very good drummer. And that's like, that's what puts it all
0: ties it up. I, I don't think it, like it takes away being. from it though. I hear what you're saying where like, so I always, I remember growing up listening to, to, to this album specifically, And some of the earlier stuff, but thinking in my head, like, oh, Lars must be like the sickest drummer in the world, because like, listen to this, it's like fast, it's intense. Later on, I come to realize, like, maybe he's not that virtuoso, but it. it, I don't think, to to someone's point earlier, it served the song. And I, I never listened to it and thought like, well, if the drummer was better... (laughs) <laughs> the output would be different. It's just never something I picked up on, personally.
3: I, I will I will throw this out there. If the drummer was more of a shredder drummer, this would have been a worse album. Yeah, I, I would 100%. agree with that. Yeah.
2: Let's talk. This is a good segue into what the context for this release is, right? And I want to get it more into Lars in specific in, in each individual song. But I do think, contextually, this was at a transitional time in music. This was released on August 12th, 1991. Yep. For context, Nevermind came out a month later. It was recorded for about the year before that. But if you think about it, like, I'm I'm mentioning Nevermind because I think that heavy, loud music was sort of about to come back into vogue in a different way. And I think this, I think you can argue that this helped push grunge across the line to a certain extent. I even heard that these guys were listening to those early Soundgarden recordings and really liking them and, like, reading off of them. This is pre maybe pre-Bad Motorfinger even. It it doesn't
5: surprise, like, uh, you know, those are obviously different things, but I think Metallica sort of traversed that chasm, right, pretty well. And there really weren't a lot of bands that did. You sort of went down with the ship right at that sea change. Very few bands were big enough to sort
2: of... Right, and it's not long before Rage Against the Machine is coming out with that debut album, which we all agree is terrific and rocks really hard. So for me personally, I could say this definitely set a template for what it meant to rock. I agree it's more on the popular side, but that was definitely that was purposeful, and I think it kind of usher, helped usher in this new era of music. In terms of sales, we're talking 31 million sales. We're in Abbey Road and Born in the USA territory, but still safely below Shania Twain's Come on Over. Luckily.
0: <laughs> so all is still right. Wait, with where is world, it in relation right? to the bodyguard soundtrack? That's the question everyone's. It's way,
2: <laughs>
3: way below, by the way. Way below the bodyguard soundtrack. I not not to go off track. But that Shania Twain album is actually pretty fucking good. That's a pretty good album. I don't like. I'm not think it's still the one on it. Uh, I believe it's still, it's still the one, man. I feel like yeah. a woman is also on that list. I'm not a. Like, don't I impress a, me much. She, oh God! Right, the hits just keep yeah. on
4: coming.
3: As far as, as a singles Shania here. Twain, back in the day, Shania Twain was goddamn smoke show. Probably still is. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm sure she looks great. I but saw
5: John a Scofield. I saw a John Scofield show maybe like three years ago. and he encore with uh, the Shania Twain song. We
3: just mentioned three man. I feel like a woman. Uh, still the one. Still the one. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Still. The one. Yeah. It's great. It's better than the Orleans so, version of that one, though.
2: <laughs> so, the, the Lars said the idea was to cram Metallica down everybody's fucking throat all over the world. Yeah. And they succeeded handily. Everyone heard this record. It it worked. In recording terms, was actually quite grueling. They fought a lot with this guy Bob Rock over control, over how the parts should go, over how long they should work on them, over how many takes they should do, over whether James Hetfield should try harder to sing, things like that, right? And they spent about nine months and over a million dollars recording this record, which I was was a little surprised to hear, but it kind of makes sense for such a huge success. I want to talk about some of the hallmarks of the recording itself, and then I want to segue into the songs. So I think one that jumps out right away, and I still think this feels to a certain extent fresh and relevant like i still really like it the rhythm guitar sound yes this close mic no room sound at all rhythm guitar which they they put the amps in this tent where it was all covered in soundproofing curtains and, and baffles and it just sounds so it sounds like an engine starting up it just sounds so intent the crunch of those rhythm the guitars. super tight
1: dry chugs. exactly
2: <laughs> yeah exactly
1: like a diesel engine
2: as we mentioned, it was one of the first times, at least, that they had ever really tried recording as a band. So they were actually in the room doing takes together and, and kind of aiming more for feel than they ever had before. In the past, it was always about just executing really complex parts accurately. And this became a little more about feel, about groove. And part of that was about slowing things down, which as we all know, and frankly, Metallica should have already known as well earlier in their career, is a way to make things heavier. It actually rocks harder when it's slower in a lot of senses. That's what Black Sabbath taught us.
0: Yeah, I remember um, seeing something where I guess so I guess Bob Rock was working with Motley Crue and when they did Sad But True, I guess we can save that for for that song. But apparently they sort of discovered drop D or at least really got pretty hyped on it. And that helped them get even sludgier and you know, just slower and just
2: Yeah. So yeah, that, I hear stuff like that too, I and mean, that's that's stuff is really surprising to me because you would think that Black Sabbath and other bands of the 70s had laid out a very clear template for how to sound doomy and low and sludgy. I, I suppose it just wasn't the maybe it wasn't the records that Metallica was listening to through the eighties. But I, I was I was a little I was a little surprised by that. Yeah, right? I
1: would I would think that's part of it. I mean, they were that they listened to a lot of different music like of course you know i think tony iomi was a huge influence on on Hatfield in terms of songwriting and like riff writing but as a band they were much more into the noabum which would be the new wave of british heavy metal so you've got your iron maidens you've got your and of course i'm blanking on the names now but a lot of the 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 newer younger speedier style of metal coming out of England at the time, and again going back to those early records, like you look at Kill 'Em All, you look at Ride the Lightning, even Master Puppets, like this is thrash, this is speed metal. You know, this yep. is not your granddad's metal, you know, or your father's metal, as they may have said, at, you know, at the time. And they were interested in speed and precision and 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 that attack and that real sort of like punk ethos of fuck you. We're going to play a thousand power chords at once. Our song's going to be really short. Although they went over the top and made them really long, but like it was just a completely different stylistic thing. And then, yeah, the black album really, again, just shifted it down into a lower gear. Got it low, got it chuggy. The tent of doom is what they called that big device that they put around the, the, the amps.
2: It, no, it's it's a good point to talk about the the genre lineage that thrash metal in the '80s was probably more descendant from punk and prog, yeah, and less from what we what I was thinking of as '70s metal via Black Sabbath. Totally,
3: I remember very famously there was a photo shoot that Metallica did, and I believe it was after like Use Your Illusion became a huge hit, where basically it was Lars coming out as like a huge Guns N' Roses fan and it was all the other members of the band in black leather and then Lars was dressed in like white leather and that was sort of them being Lars being like I actually really like Guns N' Roses and like that kind of music and I'm not just like a metal head. So that gets to your point about the fact that they do listen to a diverse set of, uh, of music and it wasn't just like, all right, it's just all speed and thrash. Yeah, that's it. No, nothing else exists. I'm sure they probably listened to like a Loretta Lynn album or two, you know?
2: Yeah, no, no musicians actually feel that way. Like the idea of genre siloing in that way is, is, is kind of ridiculous. And mm. and frankly, looking back now on something like Appetite for Destruction you could reasonably call that heavy metal. Like, why wouldn't it be? It has huge, heavy, distorted electric guitars. I, I agree. It doesn't sound like Master Puppets, yeah. but it's it's its, its like, own thing. Like
3: skis metal. Skis
2: metal. Sure. Yeah. yeah this, is where, this is where subgenres <laughs> and all that helpful fragmenting come into play. Okay, let's let's start talking about the the tunes. Uh, let's play. Let's jump back into the mega hit and the song that opens the album once more. Enter Sandman. Here's a snippet of that again. Sleep with one eye on them Ripping your pillow tight Excellent light
4: Enter night Take my hand Rock to Never Never Land
2: Alan, what do you think about this
0: too? I mean, I don't know I, what's to say about a song like this. Like, it's it's just, it's, a, it's an epic song. And I think sometimes songs have become this popular. Like, Adam t- always talks about if something has entered, like, Sweet Home Alabama territory, meaning that you've heard it so many times that you're not even sure what to make of it anymore. It's almost, like, not music. It's this other form of entertainment. This song has definitely entered that in terms of just the ubiquitousness if that's the right word I mean but it's just a fucking awesome song it's great though it's it ridiculous. Is an
2: extremely well crafted hit it's song in it's well my, crafted in my opinion
0: it's you know what is it five to six minutes but it the pacing feels great There, there's never a point where it doesn't feel like there's like wasted calories it's just it's sick it's just a sick song
5: it doesn't drop till 55 seconds and, and like in my mind it's sort of like forever tied to the video yeah and although I, I, in my mind, I actually think I see the truck hit at the beginning, oh. but that actually comes in the bridge. Yeah, right? yeah.
2: during, during yeah. one of Hetfield's two great non-vocal, uh, Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. uh,
5: yeah, yeah, oh, I thought you were going to talk about the, the conversation as with a child, which <laughs> is a really interesting choice for the bridge of the, you know like the first track on your record And a single in general yeah.
3: I think that, listen, kids are creepy as fuck Alright, this is coming from somebody <laughs> who has kids Kids are creepy as fuck And when they talk to you in that little creepy ass voice And say n- things that you don't expect to come out of their mouth It creeps you out Very good use of that device
5: um, Oh yeah, no, no, I, th- I think they leveraged it very well I agree
3: I, I'm i not going to talk shit on Lars's drumming on this one It is very simple it, You know, and again, it's very back and black It's not a bad thing i'm gonna give him a lot of praise right at four minutes and 27 seconds there is a fantastic kind of he just leaves the drums out for maybe like eight or nine seconds and just kicks back in right with the
4: headphone. oh <laughs>
0: It, it rocked really, really hard. Well, that's where the truck hits in the video, right?
2: Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. On,
5: yeah. it's on like the two. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Something. yeah, it's,
2: yeah they, it's pretty good. They managed to pack a lot of really exciting moments into this into song. song. And like you said, I think it really justifies its runtime, which I, I can't say that for every single song on this record. Mm-hmm. A, cu- a couple other little tidbits, right? So one, I heard that it, the lyrics were originally written about crib death. And then they they asked Edfield to pull it back a little. Yeah, rain they that in a there, buddy. They're like, wait, you want to go Rain mainstream? that in a little bit. But, <laughs> yeah. But then the, the other one, and this is maybe an, a, a credit to Lars, because he's credited with this. When Kirk Hammett came up with the riff, it was a little more old school Metallica, which is to say it kind of went through its... It went all the way through the front and the tail of the riff immediately and just repeated in in that way. If you can think about the riff as having a front and an end. end
3: And
5: that
2: totally good, plausible riff to build a song around. Right. And I think I'm understanding the story correctly that Lars was the one that said, Hey, wait a minute, let's stay on that first part for a little while. Let's let's build some tension. And I think that's such a great example of patience and and you know, arrangement Mm-hmm. In songwriting, and probably why Lars Smart. is really helpful as a producer, as the leader of the band. Yeah. Well, here's a question. I on that note, so since we're talking about Kirk Hammett, like, this is a question more for you, Nick.
0: Is I feel like it's it's like fashionable for people to shit on Kirk Hammett as well. Yeah. Is, is it, I don't know if that's a thing or not, but is that justified? Is is he overrated, underrated? Like, kind of curious where you come in on I, that.
1: I think Kirk Hammett is perfectly rated. <laughs> Let's put it that
5: way. Okay,
1: hear me out. Again, you know, coming up and and I again I'll be transparent. I was a Metallica. I am a Metallica fanboy. The Black Album made me want to pick up guitar and learn to play. Um, I didn't want to be Kirk Hammett. I wanted to be James Hetfield. But Kirk's playing on this album, and interestingly enough, he had never touched a wah pedal before the Black Album. So the Black Album was the birth of the wah pedal and Kirk Hammett. That love affair that comes together. Um, So you know he stylistically. Going again, all the way back through their catalog was not the virtuoso shredder that a lot of people kind of associated him with being or people have come to associate. Like if you look at guys like uh, in Trivium or Dream Theater or like
0: Dave Mustaine, even Steve
1: Vai, Dave Mustaine. Well, Dave Mustaine's definitely not a shredder, but <laughs> you know, he can he can make some pretty cool, interesting noise. He's shredder a great songwriter for personal relationships. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, Kirk brought the blues Kirk was, it was, and is like a really good blues player. He just happened to take a lot of speed and be like, all right, cool. I'm gonna play the blues really, really fast. (laughs) Right? Because he plays minor pentatonic over basically everything. And then, you know, he got the, the, that marriage with the wah pedal and went, wow, now my guitar can sound, my, now my minor pentatonics can sound even more interesting, right? And since then, it's been this kind of, I think it's turned into a trope or a bit of a meme where, oh, well, if you want to play a Metallica style solo, just play minor pentatonic and put on the wah a lot. You know, so I, I, you know, I think, (laughs) like I said, I think he's perfectly uh, in that space of like, you know what, he kind of invented this thing. He brought the blues back into metal. um, And he, you know, is responsible for arguably the biggest hit on the album. And he's a he's a cool player. He's a very humble dude. You know, of all of them, I think he's kind of the most well adjusted human. I'm sure he's not without, yeah. his, without his own problems. Buy that. Um,
2: except, except for that mustache. <laughs> the porn stash, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's uh, coming back into fashion too.
1: Yeah, yeah Jesus.
2: <laughs> well, so you, you make a good point that most of the riffs on this record, and I think most of the riffs historically in Metallica's career, were written by James Hetfield. Yeah. But this riff was written by Kirk Hammett. And yep. so it, it is an epic riff. Just to get nerdy for a second, I, I learned it and I noticed that it, it really centers on the tritone interval so even in mm, metalheads yeah. listen to
3: jazz guys the they get it, it.
2: <laughs> yeah
3: you got to play the devil's interval exactly if you're yeah, in a absolutely. fucking metal band you're not playing the devil's interval what are you doing come on
2: i they they talk about how kirk hammett said that when they played their first shows for the black album like right before it came out they played up in petaluma near san francisco and they were kind of like warm-up shows for the tour and they literally just came out and started the set with Enter Sandman. And he was like the first five or six notes, the entire place just woke up like nothing else. Mm-hmm. They knew immediately. It was like, oh, we have something here. And he said by the end of it. Yeah. The crowd's like singing along with the chorus by the end of the first time they heard the song. So, yeah,
1: yeah, it's it's it just it is a great song. It's definitely reached into that Sweet Home Alabama Stairway to Heaven, like epic I, what else would be like maybe uh uh yyz by rush or like um something more radio friendly like that's, limelight or well, some that's such a very right? canadian <laughs> very you there <comedy>. <laughs> <laughs> well but again you're talking to a musician like and you know you rush is a YYZ, bunch of music YZ, nerds right so come on <laughs> um, oh sorry did i say yyz you said yyz <laughs> oh no, <Yeah>, I, <laughs> I, I should be saying yyz Z. yeah hey i went to school in the states all right <laughs> I came back home right. after after being down there. My family's like, "What's wrong with you?" I was like, "What do you mean? What's wrong with me?" Uh, that's yeah. weird. Anyway, don't cut yeah. that They barely, can they that barely listen
2: to Rush down there. That's yeah. Wrong. <laughs> okay, let's let's move it right along to the second tune on the records. This one's called "Sad but True."
3: Note on this tune is Damn. this song fucking rocks and I don't care what anyone says. There is nothing you can do to convince <laughs> this you. This is my song favorite to rock. song on
2: the record. This is not my favorite yeah, song, but this, this song.
3: song I, my my note, and I've I've maintained this I think since high school is that if I was ever a professional wrestler, this is one hundred percent my walkout music. <laughs> yes.
5: <laughs> yeah. You know. Come yeah. on. That's yeah. pretty. It's pretty bad. It's
3: really fucking badass.
2: Yeah, and I, just I to me when I was. Because like I said, this is one of the first albums I really got into. I was at that age, that tender age, where I was just watching MTV and basically buying everything they told me to buy. Yeah. So I, the, literally the first tape I ever bought was Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood. And shortly after, I bought this based on the videos. And I remember it being kind of my introduction to thematic lyric writing, because there's a clear framework for how he's writing the lyrics. Oh, yeah. It comes to a clear conclusion at the end. It's a little little hackneyed, perhaps, I'm but yeah. the, I'm you. Yeah. You know, and I like got it. I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I could write songs. I could, I see this. Totally. Got it. Totally. He tossed in that vocab word do my dirty work scapegoat, which still makes me smile.
1: Yeah. 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 It's a heavy, heavy tune, you know, and it's the one that they, they pointed to a lot in a lot of the, because within a week or two weeks of, of the black album being released, you know, they had their detractors, their hardcore fans going, this isn't a metal rock record. This isn't Metallica. This is shit. Like people burning records, you know, that whole kind of kickback, which at the end of the day, there is no such thing as bad press. Right. But Hammett has said like, you're going to tell me that Sad But True isn't a heavy metal song. Come on and it is yeah, it's, it's a little silly yeah yeah like to this day you know you play that and again you know hockey arenas football stadiums uh i think they've i've i even heard it at a, at a at a baseball game once when i went to like a detroit tigers game you know like it's heavy and then of course you got kid rock coming along and doing a cover of it uh oh, cover God. slash mashup <laughs>
3: You mean wholesale theft? Is that what you mean? Wholesale yeah, theft? Yeah, the totally.
1: Album. I mean, yeah. He, yeah, they're credited as songwriters on that album or on that yeah. song. but
3: How could they not be, right?
1: Yeah.
5: Anybody seen the Jason Isbell cover of no. this? No. Uh, it's pretty great. It's more of like a straight blues. It doesn't really hit the changes. It's really cool. I'll um, we'll have to check here, that out. I'll share it here.
3: Yeah, we'll put that in the list. Could.
5: So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: but the, the thing about... Fan reactions. I mean let's let's keep threading these through as we talk about the songs. Cause fans just always have this reaction when a when a sort of cult band or a niche band mm. niche band becomes popular. Isn't that kind of true? 100%. Like, would it really have mattered what was on the record? They got popular. That's the problem.
1: Yeah. Neil Gaiman, if if any of you follow like nerd culture comic books, uh, the graphic novels, that kind of thing, uh he wrote the Sandman series, which was kind of tied into the topic that we're talking about believe it or not um but uh he has a quote and he and he talks about this where as an author a creative you know obviously we're talking about musicians but you get into this weird spot with your fans where if you reach a certain level of of fame or even if you're just at that very very deep niche kind of secret hidden level where your fans love you for a certain reason and basically what they tell you is "Ooh, we love that we'll have more of exactly the same please Hmm. And that's what people want. So, to your point, like it wouldn't have mattered what this album was unless it was another carbon copy of something that they'd they'd already done before. Which, to be fair, ACDC and the Rolling Stones have done for I don't know seventy-five years or something, and they're still going strong.
5: (laughs) The greatest success. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I'm arguing something slightly different. I'm arguing. I I agree with that sentiment, but I'm, I'm also arguing that. When so, when you've, as a fan, you feel more connected to something when you feel like it's just yours. Oh, just 100%. Your exactly.
3: Even a carbon copy of, of their past albums getting super famous would have pissed would off have the people it. who were like, Now I can't, like the fucking normies like it. Now I can't define myself by this because this is a thing. Like the secret's out, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: I still remember, I think it's my freshman year of high school going to the Warped Tour. You guys remember that? It was like a punk tour. Yeah. Punk tour. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And I remember seeing Blink 182 there and I didn't even like them, but I remember being like, oh, they're in this scene that feels slightly underground, even though it was at this huge fucking amphitheater. So it couldn't have been too underground. But nobody really knew who they were. And then I remember a couple of years later seeing them on MTV with the more like emo stuff. And I felt like personally affronted, as if like, nah. oh no, everyone knows about this now. But I didn't even like them to begin with. But I was still like, fuck these guys. Ugh.
3: I yeah. I had a very similar story with uh, that band Local H. We saw them open up for uh, Stone Temple Pilots, and it was like, oh yeah, these guys are fucking great. And then they had that song "Bound for the Floor" that just don't dun,
5: get it, dun, and dun, keep dun,
3: it dun. copacetic became a huge hit, and I was like, oh, well, this underground band that I like it's is no longer underground. Fuck all you guys.
5: I liked it before you another liked it.
2: The... Another song built around a vocab word yeah. that young Rob <laughs> no, took note of in his huh? early
5: years. <laughs> like, Let me put that on my list. <laughs> so I want to
3: I I pull the conversation back to the song that we were just talking about for a second. Because I have taken the opportunity to take a couple of cheap pot shots at Lars. And I will fully admit that I've taken some cheap pot shots at Lars. And I want to say that this song is defined by that snare drum fill. That that is the thing that defines this song it's not complex it is not hard to do it is tasteful as fuck and it's really hard to have something that is not crazy complex and catches you off guard be the definition of a song on an instrument like the drums and props to him it really does tie
1: the song together
0: now he's not going to sue us for for this episode. (laughs) Right.
1: Especially when you're not Neil Peart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and on that as well, it takes a little bit more listening. You have to kind of pointedly listen for it. But Jason Newstead's bass playing on that song is also extremely, extremely perfect because again, what we were talking about earlier, he doesn't follow the guitar riffs. He lays underneath them and he actually plays just behind the beat a little bit. And it adds to that sludgy, heavy feel. And if you listen to it, you just you hear this thick, chunky, grooving bass line that's going on behind these really heavy wall of sound kind of guitars. And it's it's phenomenal. It's probably my favorite aside it's interesting because my friend of Misery, of course, Jason quote unquote wrote, but this to me is I think Jason's like shining moment on the album for sure.
3: Can we just talk for a second about the best? base gig of all time to sort of just pop into this situation and then be a part of what like top 15 best-selling albums of all time he's like well i can just do whatever the fuck i want to for the rest of my life yeah. because i got it's, that black album it's probably money, also so.
2: pretty intimidating pretty yeah. intimidating you know they, he took a lot of
3: sure. shit
1: for a lot of years
3: no, right yeah, up until
1: he right up until he left the band
3: no pain no game they man.
2: auditioned uh les claypool as well yeah because kirk hammett went to high school with him yeah yeah. Oh, that would have been wild. Would have been.
0: That would have been a bad fit. <laughs> can you a imagine a fan reaction fit. to that <laughs> album? <Yeah. laughs> like you're not allowed to play yeah. above the fifth fret, motherfucker. Yeah. Get back. <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: I want to write a song about ducks that drive go karts. All right. Yay. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> all
2: right. All right. Let's uh, let's let's move it along. Look, we gotta, I, we got we got more songs. One to get second through.
3: before we get on. Before we move on to the next song, the fact that the the drum break is six beats long like the silence break is six beats long that catches me off guard every goddamn time and it's not like it's 13 beats long or something like that but like i i'd sit there and count it up like that's a six beat long break good on them i'm sure that it was originally four and they're like yeah let's just make it six sounds cooler
2: good call yeah, you're referring to the silence i'm referring right? to the silence. Yeah, actual silence yeah. yeah yeah well let's drop that in here
1: But it's that little bit of extra hesitation that makes you go, oh, my brain feels like it should be four, yep. but then I got two more beats, and then it hits, and you're like,
3: "Whoa!" Well, and it yeah. gets you, because your head is nodding on the wrong beat,
1: then. You're like, "Yeah." Uh,
3: oh, no, it's not there. Okay, yeah, there we go, yeah.
1: But it keeps you awake and engaged and listening.
2: Yeah. I agree. Great tune. Yeah. All right, let's 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 roll on to the next tune on the record, the third tune on the record, Holier Than Now.
1: Crack.
2: Well, I put this one on there originally because I was thinking that this really sounded like older Metallica to me. And yeah. the, for another reason, which is it does crack me up. I do like the song. It sounds like the older version of Metallica, the less poppy, the more thrashy, fast version. Yep. But also, something that really cracks me up. I'm not the biggest metalhead in the world, I'll admit it. But what I like about heavy metal sometimes is the pomposity of it where they could be so hard and rock so fast, and then they just toss in, like, biblical language, like, yeah. judge not, lest ye be judged yourself. <laughs> yeah, That always makes me... <laughs> well, smile. isn't there Which... also
0: a lyric in this song that says your brain is still gelatin or something to that effect? So like it's one like, of the opening lines, yeah. <laughs> it's like mixing in the, the grandiose, you know, religious themes and whatever that is.
2: It it also stood out to me, speaking of Lars, is there's a, a spot where Lars just plays a measure of snare hits on the ands and it's like a little cool feel change to transition between two parts. Mm So to me, that felt like a, a good little addition by Lars that was a little unexpected, got you got you a little off your head rock and beat yep. and 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 correctly broke up the monotony of some of these tunes.
1: Yeah. And it's just a great riff. You know, it, it it's interesting that whole it's kind of a very similar. It's almost the uh, tail to the head of Enter Sandman because the song doesn't really hit until almost a minute in. Right. It's that. And it builds 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 and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally it hits with that kind of real thrashy, even though it's slowed down, that thrashy. Interestingly enough, this track was the one that Bob Rock thought was going to be the biggest hit on the album. Hmm.
0: I read that and too, and they wanted- still kind of give him shit about it, or at least later yeah. on they were like, "You thought this was going to be the single, but I, it may have even before yeah. it had words, possibly." But Maybe. yeah, it's definitely their. It, it felt like the biggest like bridge from their past to yeah what they were trying to do. But yeah, I found that pretty wild too.
3: My yeah. uh, my note on this song is uh, Taylor Swift does metal. I like that Taylor <laughs> Swift song "Shake It Off," where it's like hater's gonna hate, but you're just gonna you know move on past it. You be holier than thou. but no, it's like. I, I have a question, and it's in my notes for this particular song. Is the Black Album the birth of what I, in my head, think of as the Hetfield harmony? That You know the harmony that I'm talking about. Like, the one Hetfield on Hetfield harmony that he does. It might be like a fifth above or something like that. That I don't think it appears on any of the other albums, but it just seems to scream Metallica. Is there sort? a
5: specific... Like a, like a moment? the Enter Sandman harmony you're talking about? No,
3: it's not the Enter Sandman harmony. I... I will.
2: He harmonizes himself on one, doesn't he?
3: Well, he no, no. He harmonizes himself on one, but it's not the same harmony. There's like this one harmony harmony. that I feel like defines this album. Which is yeah, you're Mm. right. It's like a bunch of different Hetfields all kind of stacked on top of each other. Yeah, this was the birth of that Scream Hetfield harmony.
5: Yeah, there's a stack at the end of Sad but True that I feel. is I read that he used to double. They used to double his vocal
0: a lot, but then they found that that just wasn't. It was sounding too muddy and that this yep. was the first album that they wanted him to harmony himself if that's even a word
1: yeah harmonize with harmony himself it <laughs> well, is so difficult to like get an exact match on a vocal take i, I can tell you yeah. from experience you know it's hard enough doing it on guitar but to do it huh? vocally like good luck Right. I don't think it's that hard. Well, actually. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta, I
3: gotta okay. go. Rob's you gonna say that because Rob's goddamn machine when it comes to doing vocal takes. You look at the fucking wave files of Rob's vocal takes. Nice. Machine, okay. it's,
2: it's called practice. Whereas I was just dealing so, with a
3: similar uh, issue where we're like <laughs> mixing a actually a metal album that Rob and I were doing, and I'm like, it sounds nice. like I'm doing a group vocal because I have two of myself, and then we did the low fourth harmony, and there's two of that, and I'm like it sounds like a group vocal because it's not lockstep. Rob's like, I don't have that problem.
5: Like, fuck, <laughs> you, fuck you. <laughs> So, so holier than thou brings up a question, right? About records you must listen to before you die, right? So a lot of these songs rock, all these songs yeah. rock, right? I mean, I guess, we're, I guess we're, you know, we could identify one that we all say sucks, right? But like, when am I going to listen to 64 minutes, 62? Like, when am I going to do that? What's the right setting for me
1: to sit down and to listen to the bal- the album minutes. front to back you mean hmm.
5: in general yeah like what's the right venue what's the driving right... back like, i'm from not going like, to sit game, down though. for dinner <laughs> and eat... <laughs> But the hockey game, like, the game begins. No, no. Right? No. Like, they turn the music You're
3: driving off. home from a hockey game, and you're, like, a little bit drunk, and you're a little bit tired, they, and you don't want to fall asleep it's night, Okay, keep going. Flyers like, won.
2: Yeah, Flyers won, yeah,
3: like. and you're trying to get home, but you're like, I got about an hour drive, and be stuck in traffic for a little bit, scenario. but I got, I got to stay on my toes here. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Flyers uh, lost uh, the squeaker. How about that? <laughs> <laughs>
5: I don't know. Happen. I've
1: got, you know, I've, okay. So never be <laughs> I've, I drive a, twelve geez, I don't even know. I guess it's a 14 year old vehicle at this point. I still have a CD changer in my truck. I have the black album on like it has never left Repeat. my changer since I put it in seven, eight years ago, like whatever. It's always in my truck. It's always on. Um, so,
2: it's, so it's highway driving, it's highway music. driving
1: music, city driving music, whatever. It's, it's all good. Um, yeah. It's, well,
2: I, yeah, I put it on walking around Bangkok yesterday or a couple days ago, and it's great headbanging, just yeah. walking around music. I use it at the but gym. But you are hinting at one of the key complaints I have with the record, which is it's too damn long. <laughs> wow, interesting. Metallica, what were you thinking? You should have cut like three songs from this thing. But we're going to get to that because, in my opinion, the front half of the record is extremely strong. And things are going to go downhill from here, guys. So let's move it right along <laughs> <laughs> to... Nothing Else Matters. Perhaps the biggest departure for Metallica and yeah. the most controversial song in the metalhead area. Let's play a little snippet of that. So close,
4: no how far Couldn't be much more from the heart Forever trusting who you are In myself this way, life is ours, we live our way, all these words I don't just say, and nothing else matters, trust I see, and I find in you,
2: What I heard about this one is that they, they did this cool thing. Metallica is known, I think, for doing really cool things by the fans, by their hardcore fans. They gave away 10,000 plus tickets to a listening party at Madison Square Garden before this record came out. All these people came to be in Madison Square Garden and just listen to the record. They didn't play or anything. And Hetfield just talks about being backstage and being worried for when Nothing Else Matters is going to come on, <laughs> thinking people are just going to start throwing up and like like lard ass and Stand By Me or something. <laughs> But no, it went over okay. It went over okay.
1: Yeah, uh, there's a there's a great quote by Bob Rock from the Year and a Half in Life of Metallica, and Bob Rock says something to the to the effect of uh, Yeah, because you know the guys in Anthrax, Slayer, and Megadeth would be like so upset if you actually made something like you know melodic and nice, right?
0: <laughs> this song has feelings. Fuck that. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> you take
1: the, the song-
3: distortion off these guitars, and it's not. It's not a heavy song at all. Like you, you could undistort those guitars and have them be all acoustic, and it would still sound really good. It'd sound like a, oh, yeah. just a
1: melodious, nice song. Well, they have. I mean, look at yeah. SNM that they did in sure. whatever yeah. 2001, right?
2: Yeah, just bring. Yeah, they pushed that. Or they they got an orchestra, but then they pushed it way down in the mix, right? Mm.
0: I I like this song. I think it's a cool song. I think like I always had a soft spot in this for this song because. When I first started playing guitar, I realized that you could play that opening part just on the open strings. Yep, and actually felt like I knew shit. And
1: yeah,
2: it was it was cool.
1: Going back to a song that births guitar players. There you go. Yeah, right.
2: It's it, it's that's a classic. A, it's, that's a great point. Yeah, and I, I, and I, I've even on this podcast often used it as a reference for hey, my brain kind of needs a break from the rock to make me be able to feel rock again. Sure. So this is a this is kind of helpful for them. It's a palate cleanser w- kind of thing. It's almost. a palate cleanser. But it was, exactly. I think
1: this was actually the biggest hit on the album. And this is, to somebody's point, they said, this is like, you know, the metal record you could listen to with your mom, right? And I remember mm-hmm. introducing my mom to Metallica by playing her Nothing Else Matters. It's like, oh, you got to listen to this. You're going to love this. <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's a really beautiful song. And Elton John has actually called this one of the most beautiful ballads of all time, which... I mean, Elton John, come on, right? Take him or leave it. Like, he's written some good stuff.
2: Oh, I like I Elton John, Yeah, he's sure. good. Yeah. Okay, so there's there's one thing I wanted to... I watched the Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica documentary that's about the making of this. Yeah. And there's this one scene where the band's just going through a take... And Hetfield's got his music stand in front of him. They're all like sitting down, being all serious in the band room. He's got his music stand in front of him in the room, and on one side he's got like lyrics or chords or whatever. They're playing this song, and on the other side he's just got a page from Penthouse, yeah. just <laughs> staring at pornography. <laughs> They're twenty-seven, man.
0: He
5: was the only one not going he's through a divorce keep at his that time. Energy up, you know.
2: <laughs> I just thought that, like, oh, I need this as inspiration because we all we've all seen the Nothing Else Matters video. There's a bunch of blurred out pornography yeah. on the walls of the studio. I get that part of it, but what was surprising to me was like, no, I need to be staring at this 100 percent of the time while I'm doing the take, <laughs> like like
1: peripheral vision. Yeah. Well, again, you got a bunch of 20, 25 to 30 year old guys, right? One up in each other. You know, they're not like gym rats, so they're not like bros pounding their chests. But like musically speaking, metal is a very, it's a very similar culture. Right. I can play faster than you. I can play more technical than you. I can play heavier than you. I can growl louder than you. And so, yeah, to have this song appear on the album, you'd have to maybe have some cognitive dissonance going. I know it's going to be, this is a good business decision, but I don't know if I can really do it, but I mean, he pulls it off and he, it really birthed that golden voice Hetfield sound that we've all kind of come to know and love over the, the, the following 30 years.
0: Well, I feel like they could have gone at that, t- at that period of time too, in 91 could have still done 80s power ballad. Like, I think that that option was still sure. there to do something so like glad super they cheesy. And yeah, totally. They didn't. And I'm sure it was jarring for the, you know, the longtime fans, but it, it works yeah. really well. It's, it's a fucking good, great song.
1: Yeah. And and I mean, again, we're getting back to the commerciality of it. But if that's even a word, the success of Nothing Else Matter broke them in markets that would never have played them on the radio before. You know, it allowed them to play in every single continent on earth, in every weird little corner in every little backwater, if they had a football stadium, if they had a a, a soccer pitch, if they had a you know a, a an airplane hangar where they could get power and put in a 1, thousand fifteen hundred or ten thousand people, they went and played there and and that's thanks to nothing else matters um, in in no small part
5: was nothing else matters the first song on side 2 of the tape or the second song on side 2
2: That is a great question
5: Ooh. I feel like this would like
2: it's be been a... A... Mm. I'm going to look up I'm going to look that one up
3: Sorry I was just uh I, I just ran out for a second but did we talk about the that show that they played in Russia for like half a million people No
1: we didn't talk about it Oh yet. my god we
3: good didn't talk about that God yet. the yeah. footage of that is utter insanity there's like multiple stations of speakers like going Mm -hmm. off into the distance because and you can see like the sound delay of the notes that they're hitting as the crowd reacts to them i could not imagine playing for half a million people that feels like it'd be a
0: a pretty life changing performance to to deliver yeah yeah, it almost
5: like it's almost like scary to look at it's like holy shit how many people died in the crowd just through
0: sheer (laughs) yeah
1: I think
5: like you know, so. What are what are the two. numbers? On oh, two that? people died. In the car. I, I've seen ranges from like half a million to like <laughs> one and a half million. Sorry,
1: just to go back real quick. So it's actually the tr- the second track of side two of the tape. I just.
5: Second track of sites oh, image search. I was just
1: starting I got certain two people
3: yeah. died during that show. I was like, it seems low. Oh, I'm sure more people too. died than that. Cause the,
1: the, the Russian military was there as security and they had oh. never seen anything like this before. And they were still like, they're still at that point under like communist rule. Like the, the, the wall in Germany had fallen like maybe three or four months prior you know the military was like we have to keep our people in line and of course people are letting loose like it'd been 15 years of you know copy of a copy of a copy of a metallica tape and a and a fake of a fake of a fake of a shirt and you know you've got half a million people showing up and going crazy and jumping up and down and being excited in very communist controlled russia yeah. the military terrifying. i'm sure beat dozens of based people based on death. My-
2: Based on my detailed study of YouTube, Russians just seem very sane and chill. And quiet and relaxed, right? Not a lot yeah. of drinking, drinking going relaxed, on yeah. there either. I'm
3: sure <laughs> yeah, no not so at super <laughs> Fair. <laughs> my question is of those half a million people, how many were women? Like 400, 500, maybe?
5: <laughs> I mean, based on just looking at some images on YouTube, I'm pretty sure all of them are wearing black t shirts. Pretty sure that's approaching a hundred percent. I remember it's saturation. So gender, gender becomes t- t- tough to identify.
2: This, uh, yeah, clearly they're a huge band. I, listen, I agree the song's good, but I do have a complaint, which is it it goes on too long. I think if this had been the last song on a record, I could have stomached a six and a half minute song, but it really should probably end around four minutes. So that's 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 my main that's my main concern with it. But um, I, I wanted to also express, you know, since I think we all watched the videos again this week, and they were a big part of at least my listening to this record, the MTV music videos, I just want to express support for the behind the scenes yes. music video. That yeah. was like, that, that actually did mean a lot to me when I was a kid. I loved seeing how the sausage was made, yeah. so to speak, In via those It videos. almost reminded yeah. me of that the uh, that
0: Aerosmith song, What It Takes. They had different versions where one was like a produced, you know, they're, they're playing in, behind chicken wire in a bar or some shit. And then the other one is just them in the studio. And yeah, I always thought those were cool to just see, you know, you're not really seeing that that much of the behind the scenes, but sort of no pretense,
2: Mm -hmm. but you're trying to, you're trying to pick up hints. I'm just saying as a kid, that was really interesting to me that I was always curious about the process behind making music. And this is the kind of thing that helped with that
1: year and a half in the life of Metallica was my education of how to make a record. Of how to be a studio musician, of how to play a Metallica song. Frankly, I would watch it and rewind it and like look at their hands and try to figure out what they were doing. And you know, this is back in the days where like I had a buddy that would sh- showed me like how to turn like slow down a turntable. So you'd put it down to like if you had a seventy eight, you turn it down to like thirty three, or if you had a thirty, whichever way. Mm-hmm. Or you'd like load a bunch of quarters on top of the needle so it would like slow down, and you could wait the thing, so you could actually like learn the tunes as you were going. Of course, you'd have to rewind the. Uh, uh, or detune your guitar But um, Like I I used that same technology Technology And I'd like actually Stretch my tapes out To slow them down oh, You know And geez. I'd put them back I'd have to respool them of course And it would be all warbly And gross And I'd have to like Detune my t- guitar To like weird Like three and one Eighth tunings Like but You know having access to something like that to actually, but this is what lives. it's going to take. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm in, this is me. This is going to be my life. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to study it. So it, yes, Rob, it took all that to
2: figure out an E minor chord. Yeah. <laughs> I
1: grew up in the middle of nowhere, Northern Ontario, man. My town had 350 people. I was one of two guitar players.
2: No, no shit. I'm just, I'm just giving shit. So you're now. like the second
3: best guitar player in your town, right? That's pretty good. <laughs> For about six months. Not yeah. Bad. And then the third. Awesome.
2: Okay, let's roll it right along here. We're we're running we're running uh, long, so let's keep it going. Next song on our list is The God That Failed. Let's play something that. Okay, to my mind, I put this on as the low point. I'm bored and this riff isn't really speaking to me. Is it supposed to be edgy? Aren't all metal bands kind of anti-religion already? Isn't that like a baseline of what they do? That's my I have
0: four notes or four words as my only notes for this and those notes were weak, boring, aimless, forgettable. Mm. And that's my entire synthesis of the song. I'm probably giving <laughs> Nick
2: defend this one, baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay,
1: so, you know, I don't it's, it's hard. I don't disagree. I get where you're coming from. I hear it. Personally, I hear production stuff going on in this. Uh, I hear, you know, Jason with his twelve-string bass that's been layered. I think, and again, I was reading through notes and things, production Can notes. He just that pause
2: I on that for a second. Yes, twelve-string bass. Oh yeah, <laughs> talk about rock and roll excess, <laughs> right? Eight um, too many strings at least. <laughs>
1: but they didn't use it as really as like a bass on the album. They used it as a sound effect. So you know, they 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 layered it up and recorded it and recorded it and recorded it. The 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 beginning of um unforgiven there's like that weird chimey gong yeah. sound that's also I think you're talking, are you bass. talking about
2: wherever i may roam I think oh sorry wherever i may roam yes yeah
1: absolutely because yeah. um, i think
2: unforgiven has like a french horn at the beginning yeah
1: they they sort of um tried to emulate like uh, enrico morricone but uh you know there's a lot of really cool stuff that goes on in the god that failed and you know if you listen to it from like a musician's slash maybe not even musicians but like a producer's ear There's a lot of really cool shit that's happening in that. Um, Just from the mix and the spread on it, I find the spread on this particular song a lot wider and more theatrical, if I can say that word, than a lot of the other tunes. A lot of the other tunes are really pointed and really, really, really focused. And this one has a very... Airy feel to it is in comparison To something like sad but true for example So you know like I said I, I Get where you're coming from I don't agree For me the weak point on the album is Is actually of wolf and man I think That's like the cheesiest song uh, of all Of them um, and you know Headfield howling like a wolf I'm just like Oh come on really but um, Anyway that's do we
5: got a timestamp on on <laughs> well, th- this one
1: <laughs> on The wolf howl yeah uh, Let's see if I can find he does it a couple Times he did- Definitely don't want to listen to the whole song just to find that wolf out,
3: by the way. So get a timestamp.
2: I'll back you up just a little bit by saying that you're right. The God That Failed, one of the things I got from the documentary is there's a track of Hetfield cocking a rifle. Yeah. As a sound effect on there. I couldn't quite find it in the mix, to be honest with you, but I thought that seemed like a fun bit of studio experimentation. Yeah.
3: I will say this. This song, to me, seemed the most like the dumbing down of their previous sound to try to be accessible in a bad way. I think that the rest Mm. of the songs are accessible but they don't seem dumbed down. For some reason this one just came off as dumbed down for the sake of accessibility in a way that um, made it less than it should have been whereas the other songs are more accessible but I don't feel a lessening of them the, they still have the metallica sound but they don't have them been lessened by mm. the uh attempt to make them a little bit more accessible and so like the the first 30 seconds of the song i thought it was like an allison chain song um i was just like i hadn't listened to this album in a long time and so i had the the playlist on and i was like oh did we get to the end of the playlist and just play me an allison chain song and then i was like oh no this is definitely a metallica song But then, like, nothing really interesting happened all that much. Like, a good guitar solo didn't really save the song for me. My question is right at the exact four-minute mark. There's like a, yeah, that sounds like tape bleed almost. And I'm wondering (laughs) if it's one of those, it's the tape bleeds there. We just have to lean into it, so we pumped it type of things going on. Um, it works actually really well, but I'm just wondering if that was like one of those like, we have to deal with the limitations of what's on the tape type of situations.
0: That feels
2: just walking around the studio, just going,
0: yeah, yeah, it's just
2: Oh <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, probably maybe from one of the drum mics. Yeah, from a drum. Yeah, mic instead of they... it,
1: it hits actually where you would have the backbeat symbol. It does. And I don't know if they, I don't know if they did it purposely uh, to replace a symbol, but that's, I feel like how they used it and it is it's got that yeah and it is but it's a way back microphone thing
3: yeah yeah it's used to well it's used to good yeah it's cool well but i'm wondering if they were like oh shit this is on there we can't get rid of it so i guess we (laughs) gotta use it
1: (laughs) and the shotguns are cool they actually pan left to right and they do it in the intro and then they also do it um uh three quarters of the way through the song as they sort of um uh revamp that intro to build back out to the to the out of the song
3: i didn't pick up on the shotguns cocking and that's strange for me. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. off brand. Of that. Yeah, um, seriously. It's really off brand for me. But uh, all right. Yeah. Fair enough.
1: It, it's, they're very subtle. You you wouldn't notice it unless somebody has pointed it out. But once somebody points it out and you hear it, you'll never unhear it. I don't um, know if that
3: statement is ever made. It's a subtle shotgun cock. It's a really subtle <laughs> shotgun cock.
1: <laughs> so it comes in. Out of like eleven seconds, so okay. there's the drums and the bass, and then as soon as the guitars come in with the chugga ja
3: mm.
1: and you can hear him, it's okay. like a like a Red Rider, not a BB gun, but like what what, what do you call that? Uh, like a cock it's action, a lever uh, action. shotgun. shotgun, lever action. Yeah, lever action. Sorry, I'm Canadian. Gun. We don't really have guns up here. It's okay.
2: It's not a pump action. <laughs> shotgun, <laughs> I'm kidding. <but> <laughs> we, action. Have we have lots of hunting for, rifles. We have enough yeah. for the both of us. Yeah, right.
3: I could supply everybody on this call a few times over.
1: There we go.
2: ATF's listening okay let's move right along to the last song on our focus list round this thing out The Struggle Within yeah let's play that one
4: reaching out for something you got to feel or touching to what you that was real kicking at a dead horse pleases you no way of showing your gratitude so many things you don't want to do what is the what have you got to lose what the hell what the what is it you think you're gonna find? Hypocrite, hypocrite, born and seduced to the poor in mind. Nah, struggle with it.
2: Take
1: it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad we got to, to incorporate this with our sort of analysis of the record. Cause I feel like this is really, it's one of those deep cut tracks that I think a lot of people just forget about. And a lot of reviewers don't ever talk about. I feel like it's the unsung hero of the album. It's actually my favorite track on the album. Similar. I think it was Tom talking about um, one of the tracks kind of being like the closest to like kind of the original Metallica songs. I feel like this one is the most old Metallica on the record. It's fast. It's furious. It's short, which is again, not really in line with what they used to do, but like keeping with the, the black album vibe, it's very short. And, uh, it's it's just really cool. It's got like this really militaristic start to it, which is perfect for the time. Again, you got ninety one, you got the Persian Gulf War, all sorts of stuff going on. And uh, the solo, I think, in non typical Hammett fashion, doesn't just focus on the minor pentatonic. He actually has a run which still fits within the minor pentatonic, but he uses this this minor run and he kind of uses a pedal tone, very similar to what Bach would use in like a fugue. Uh, And it's during the solo. It's kind of the halfway three quarter mark where he has the pedal tone on the top and he runs down the scale and comes back up the scale pedaling with that high note. And it's just it's a really it's such a tasty solo that it just for me is is Hammett's shining moment on the album. And again, it just I, I love the I love the track.
3: Yeah, Nick, I'm glad that you pointed this one out as one to to dive into deeper because I did come to appreciate this a lot, actually, and I, I do think that the the feel change from that that sort of march beat at the beginning to the kind of kick into the sort of heavier, yeah. speeding up riff like it was really good. It felt epic. Um, it's got a great guitar stack, um, you know. The and I feel like they didn't use that as much on this album as one would expect in a metal album where they sort of start stacking those harmonies over a riff, but. They really nailed it. It really does
5: cool. have the really cool, like Thin Lizzy, yeah, hardcore Thin Lizzy it's metal totally, vibe, totally. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which you definitely hear more on earlier Metallica yes. records, yes. right? Like it's it's a little more like you know it's it's a little more obvious it's been done, right? But it doesn't mean it's not badass, right? Yeah. and the people that like that's the thing that people want to hear. They're like, where's my Thin yeah. yeah. My, like, I
3: want to be able to close my <laughs> you know, eyes and feel like, like I'm fighting a fucking dragon. Give me that, like, give me that vibe when you're
2: talking I agree. I'm glad we focused on it. It made me give the song a second look. Because part of what I'm, I was feeling with this record, though, was that by the, by the time I got to the back half of this record, especially this, the last track, I was just tired of listening to this type of music. I guess it's because I'm not a metalhead. It's a lot. It's an hour long. And as we've previously discussed, I think 40 minutes is about the right amount of time for a record. Let's assume that that came about only because of the physical medium of vinyl. But that feels about right, even for bands I do really, really like. An hour feels a, a little long. I will say that one thing that kept bumping me about this song, I agree with the musical comments. The lyrics felt the most shoehorned in rhythmically. And I I don't think we mentioned this, but Hetfield's pointed out that the way they always write lyrics is last. They always write melodies first, and then he writes lyrics to fit inside those melodies. And I think normally it's worked pretty well for him, even with this kind of title-first songwriting approach that they often have. I'm I'm good with most of that. But in this case, the the lyrics in the chorus and the rhythms across those lyrics felt really strange and shoehorned in. They change the number of syllables quite drastically, and it just feels, I don't know why, I couldn't tune that part of it out. Well, I will
3: say this, my my note on this is that uh, Hetfield is not a very good singer on this track, and I, a lot of the time, I, I feel like they do a lot to make him sound good and He's not. I'm not saying he's a terrible singer or anything like that, but he's got a voice that needs some massaging and maybe it needed a little bit more work on this one for it to come across and part of it I think is the sort of clunky rhythm that it gets into uh, uh, mm. you know, vocally I still like the song though I still do think it's actually a pretty rocking song Yeah Listen to in the context of a six song focus list It's like, yeah, it's great I would agree with you by the time I get to the end of this album, it's a long album. and I'm definitely like, I just want to listen to some like fucking Gilbert or Sullivan or something.
5: Well, like, like there are certain hip hop records where it's the same thing. I'm just fatigued by the end of it, sure. right. And it, it might maybe it has something to do with the low end, right? Uh, maybe it has to do with like I'm just not as familiar with the material, so it's like it's uh, like that style of material. So like I actually have to work to listen to it. Like, sort of, a or, different
2: or, way? Or maybe it's our shifting attention spans. Uh, these yeah. could all be 2022, factors, right? right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Shifting. But, but that's definitely how I was feeling overall on the back half. So I thought the front half was extremely strong, and I, I think it kind of trailed off a little bit. But part of that was my own ear fatigue. Okay, I say we've been waxing poetic about this for quite a while now. Let's round it out. And what we're going to do, as we always do, is we're going to go around the horn here, and we're going to vote. Is Metallica's eponymous so-called black album... A must listen before you die. Tom, I'm going to throw it to you first.
3: Yeah, I'm going to give an unqualified fuck yeah to this. Um, one of the songs that we didn't even really talk about, Wherever I May Roam, is the best Rips song on the fucking album. That song rocks so goddamn hard. I, I liked this album. It, it's a little long, certainly um again it's not the snifter of brandy in the library in the evening as i'm in a contemplative <laughs> mood type of album but it has its time and place and when you listen to it in that time and that place it hits pretty goddamn hard so two thumbs up for me yeah this is this is a must listen
2: excellent let's kick it over to phil so guys, I'm still torn.
5: Like I'm still, I'm still really struggling because what I struggle with is the record and the must, right? Like, I mean, no doubt there's at least six, probably seven, just absolute crushers on here. Probably more than that, honestly. You've got five or six classics, um, but it does as a record. It, you know, it's like, and then oh. All, all, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go yes. I'm just gonna go yes. I'm not gonna overthink it too much. This record rips. That's a yes from me.
2: Nick?
1: Yeah, I mean, as I said from the beginning, I think I think it's definitely a yes. Um, you know, it's it's consistently for the past thirty 30- Two years been on that list you know if you, there's that game you play in high school where it's like if you're stuck on a, on a desert island what 10 albums would you take with you if you those were the only albums you could ever listen to again it's consistently been on that list for me um, from the production to the writing from the story to the influence to the wall of guitars the tight miking, uh, even the cheesy wolf screams and the ballad of nothing else matters like it is yeah two, two thumbs way 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 up
2: Alan
0: yeah, I mean, I agree. It's it's an easy yes. This is one of the easier yeses I think I, I've dished out on this on the show. I also think that you know now that we're fifty plus episodes in, I do think our I don't want to say the bar is shifting a little bit, but I can f- feel my sensibilities at least for this stuff moving from like what's what's novel or interesting or what's something I heard that I think is kind of cool that I didn't know about before to really codifying like must you listen to this before you die. And I think this easily fits into that bill. I think it's some of the things I look for are, you know, is it, is it iconic? Does it capture, you know, a moment in time? Does it break ground in some way, whether you call them sellouts or not? This 100% was, was a groundbreaking metal album in in many senses. So yeah, pretty, pretty easy. Yes. There, even though I will say to Phil's point, it's, it's a little bit of an uneven album. It's not the most, uh, you know, Probably well-balanced, but yeah, it's on there.
2: Yeah, despite my complaint of having... It would have been better if they just trimmed a couple tunes, and I'm a little surprised they didn't do that, but if you look back at all their records, they're all about an hour long for whatever reason.
5: Well, this is also sort of a problem of the era, right? Like all of a sudden an album could be longer and people just made it longer. Even though they didn't always have more material. Right.
2: But it's it's, to me it's funny that Metallica went into the studio thinking we gotta be more concise and then they still made an hour long album. They, mm -hmm. They definitely could have trimmed just, just by love, mathematics, if you trim the worst three songs, then the album would have gotten better, right? But in any case, I agree with everything everyone said. It's a hell yes for me. Absolutely listen to this. This, to a young Rob, this taught me what rock and roll was. And I think it's still true that these are some of the most successful, effective, hard rock, metal, whatever you want to call it, songs ever, right? I What I was thinking about when you look back on Metallica's career, the Black Album, did two things for them. It rocketed them to to stardom, but it also like validated their entire previous career. It made them a stadium act based on these hits, but then they have continued to be a stadium act ever since then for the last thirty years without really having any other significant hits. So that is that's pretty damn and, and, impressive. And I, I, that's a really interesting point
5: because there hasn't been a hiccup or a question in that either. Right. Right. It's been like. Metallica plus the backlog before that record—that's enough. Yeah, that's forty thousand seats plus in every city but in the world. No I
3: also tests. think it. Exactly. Right? I think <laughs> it can't not be said, and this is like one of my favorite San Francisco stories, which is something I would totally do if I was famous and you know cool like that. But they played a they played chemo's, which is a show a room that Phil, you and and Rob and I played together. It seats about one hundred and fifty to two hundred people. And they booked them as a fucking, what do they call themselves? They called themselves Spun because apparently Bob Rock, who played bass with them, this is after Jason Newston left in 2002, just called up Chemos and was like, hey, you have a $75 pay-to-play uh, like uh, feature here where if I just give you $75, you'll let me book the room for the night? And so they did that and they played for about 150 people and they just played a bunch of fucking songs as Metallica. And as the lore goes, apparently the bartenders did not even realize it was Metallica who played the entire time. And at the end of the night, we're like, oh, these guys had a lot of equipment. I don't know what the fucking deal was. And they're like, yeah, that was <laughs> well, fucking Metallica. Well,
2: as, by we, the way. as we sadly know, the the sound in that room is complete bullshit. So they probably couldn't hear a thing. That's the best it. drummer I've ever yeah. heard
0: walk through the door of this place.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right well there it is metallica your career has been further validated by the likes of us congratulations you're on the list baby (laughs) now all that remains to round out this week is to pass it over to tom who's going to tell us what record we're going to be listening to next week
3: excellent all right thank you everybody and i just want to throw a thank you to nick one more time thanks for being on the show really appreciate it Uh, absolutely Uh, it's been Thanks great. For to get me. The, it was a blast. Yeah, it's been great to get the perspective of somebody who... I feel like I was a filthy casual for this album. I just sort of heard it on MTV and was like, oh, these songs are pretty cool, but I never did the deep dive. So it's nice to hear that. But I got the Albinator 5000 here. We are going to bust it out, give it a whirl, see what we're going to listen to next week. So drum world, please. Next week we will be listening to... Oh, this is another really hard rocking album that is going to blow your fucking tits off. It is Bell and Sebastians. If you're feeling sinister, you could
5: not get more of it's a departure. Wrong. That record is very different. <laughs> Lots it of crunchy,
0: close mic well, I mean, stuff on yeah. that one. Seriously, it's like the guitar yeah, stacks I mean, are they out
5: definitely of control. Have a tent of doom out for of that. control
3: guitar stacking. <laughs> a yeah.
1: lot of yes.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think you pronounce this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of balance. So, yeah, get ready for that one. Uh if you guys are ready for a, a head spinning change of pace, listen to that out.
2: Excelente. Excited for that week before we sign off officially. Again, yeah, I agree. Thanks, Nick. It was great going through this with you. Anything you want to plug here on the show, Nick? Where where should people go to find yeah, you? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um you can find me at my website, it's guitardojo.ca. And uh, there you will find links to my Facebook group and my YouTube, all of my socials, all that kind of good stuff. I sell my um, my books and my courses there. If you are an intermediate guitar player and you're looking to get better faster without the jargon hassle and stress of music theory, I have a course for you. It is called the Guitar Fretboard Infinity Loop System. And exclusively for a thousand one album complaint podcast listeners, I have for the first ten people that go and buy that, I have a 40% off coupon code it is 1001 complaints 40 so there you go
2: awesome thanks Nick and we'll, we'll put all those links those links will be in the notes yeah. of the episode as well really appreciate it we didn't even mention modes once man what do you know <laughs> what do you know modes are
1: scales and scales are modes exactly we just, it doesn't have to be any kept, more compl- complicated than we that
2: kept it real simple up in here okay well that team listeners if you like what we're doing feel free to give us a holler, give Nick a holler, get better at your instrument, better yourself, or shoot us over how wrong we really are or how right we are over at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next week, I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I've been Phil. And I'm Alan. Boosh!
4: Yeah!